Welcome to Practical Christian Living. I found my real rest in Jesus because Jesus is our, he became our high priest that gave the sacrifice. He became the sacrifice himself that was given and he became our rest. He fulfills all the aspects of the law. Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law, but I came to finish it. That's what that word means to fulfill. He came to finish the law. Hopefully, we are not basing our relationship with God on rules or rituals we follow because that's not what Jesus wants. He's concerned with what we do on the inside, our hearts, not what people see on the outside. We are looking at Jesus' friendship with Matthew, the tax collector, and what a real relationship with our Savior looks like when we put away our list of do's and don'ts and focus on surrendering in all humility. With more from Mark chapters 2 and 3, here's Robert Furrow. We should fast when we are struck by something. The Bible says it's the fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man that accomplishes much. When you see something and it strikes you, or, or one of your children is going through something, or a parent is going through something, or a brother and sister are going through something, and you're really, you're, you're, you're waking up at night thinking about it, it's, it's something that has really bothered you, that should be a cue that you would fast and pray. Because what you're saying is, I'm gonna take this time that I would normally eat and have pleasure in eating, and I'm gonna give it to you, and I'm gonna seek you in prayer instead, and you do it for someone. Fasting is a form of grieving. When you're grieving, you don't wanna eat. And so it's saying, I'm taking this so seriously that I'm gonna fast over this. Now the scribes and Pharisees, they fasted to be seen by men. They walked around, they acted hungry, they didn't, they didn't straighten their clothes out. And Jesus even rebuked them early in the book of Matthew. He said, which is the tax collector telling people what Jesus said about the Pharisees. And Jesus said, don't walk around all disheveled, acting like, oh, I'm fasting. He said, but comb your hair and put on the right clothes. Don't do your works in front of men to be seen by men, which is what Pharisees do. And so when they ask him, how come Jesus didn't fast? Which is interesting because Jesus gave us examples as to how we're supposed to live, right? And he did fast for 40 days, which is an example that I, personally, I have no desire to follow. If God really wants me to fast and he communicates that to me, I will for 40 days, I will. When I fast, it's interesting, uh, and I fasted a lot when I was younger to try to overcome sinful desires because I thought and was taught that if you fast, you get power to overcome sinful desires. But it was funny, as soon as I started fasting, I started craving food I didn't even like. <laughs> didn't even like it. But as soon as, I, you know what? I didn't even have to miss a meal yet. I just had to go, I'm going to start fasting right now. And then a few minutes later, oh man. You know, desiring something that you couldn't even have. So it says that Jesus said to them, can the friend of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. In other words, there's a time to fast and there's a time not to fast. You don't fast when you're rejoicing, when the bridegroom is there. You fast when you're not, when the bridegroom is gone. He says, but the days will come, verse 20, when the bridegroom will be taken from them and they will fast in those days. Years ago, I did a wedding and the, the groom and bride told me that they really wanted to consecrate their marriage to God. And so they were going to do it by fasting 
for the first three days of their marriage. I told them, I appreciated that they really wanted to, to start off consecrating their marriage to God, but I'm not quite sure that's the best time to fast. And the opposite. You know, you should feast on those first three days. You should rejoice. You certainly don't want to be mourning. I hope you're not mourning for the first three days after you're married. That's not a good thing. There was days of fasts that were called in the Old Testament. God said, call a day of national fasting because the children of Israel are doing things they shouldn't want to do. But there were seven feasts that were mandatory every year. Seven feasts. Once in a while, they would call a fast. But there were seven feasts, a time of gathering with God and rejoicing. There's a time to fast and there's a time not to fast is what Jesus was saying. And when the bridegroom is there, it's not a time. But he would be gone and they would find themselves struggling and going through differences in life and really being moved. I also should say one more thing about fasting. When Jesus came off of the Mount of Transfiguration, his disciples had been trying to cast a demon out of a boy, but they couldn't do it. And so Jesus came and immediately casted the boy out. Actually, casted the demon out. He cast the boy out of the demon. He cast the demon out of the boy. And, uh, and the, the disciples later said, how come we couldn't do it? Jesus said, because this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. Now, you might think, well, then you do get spiritual power from prayer. No, I think that he means prayer and fasting for that boy. Really saying, this, this, this kid is oppressed. Jesus really cared that he was oppressed by this demonic spirit. He was passionate about it. And when we are really care about something and we show that we are really passionate about it by fasting, not so men can see our passion, but so God can see it because we are really moved by it then there's a power that comes that we are really able to take authority because the fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much and you are fervent about something when you're willing to fast about what that is. And so then Jesus says things are changing, that there's times that are changing. He had just said, the bridegroom's there, you don't fast. When the bridegroom's gone, you fast, so things are changing. No one sews a piece of unshrunken cloth onto an old garment or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. No one puts new wine into an old wineskin or else the new wine bursts the wineskin. The wine is spoiled. The wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into a new wineskin. In other words, when God's ready to do something new, he starts a new movement. He doesn't just kind of rework the old one. He starts something new. He doesn't patch up the old one because you put new cloth on there, it tears it away. And he's going to start something new. There's a new work and the old work is leaving. The old work that is leaving is the law. And the Pharisees were the, were, were the representation of the law. But there was a new work coming. And that was love and grace, being kind to one another, not trying to show one another up by the great religious acts that you could do. The third part here, as he, as he compares and contrasts them, is in verse 23. Now it happened as he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, as they went, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So the Sabbath day had said two things. When you were given the Sabbath day in the law, it said two things. Number one, that it was a time of not working. It was a time of rest. God has made us to rest. It's important that we rest. And the Sabbath became an example of Christ because Jesus is our rest. When we come into Jesus, we are entering into our rest. Isn't that good to understand? Isn't that good to know? 
that you are in Christ and you have rest in Christ today because he is our Sabbath. It was also, you were also to remember God. Those are the two things you do. Number one, you remember God. Number two, you don't work on that day. So the Pharisees came in and they made all kinds of new laws. They rewrote the laws on the Sabbath. And then when Jesus broke their laws that they rewrote, they claimed he broke it. These Sabbatarians did it and Sabbatarians today do it. Those who tell you and me that we are not right for meeting on Sunday morning, that we have to meet on Saturday. The Bible says in Romans chapter 16, I think it is, serve God on whatever day you want. One man puts one day above another. Another man has all days alike. Who are you to judge another man's brother? It's not about the Sabbath anymore. We've been set free from the law. But people today rewrite the Sabbath and then tell us we're breaking it. The Sabbath was never about going to the synagogue. In fact, if you lived further away from the synagogue, you couldn't go there on the Sabbath because you couldn't travel over a quarter of a mile on the Sabbath day. So if you lived over a quarter mile away from the synagogue, you couldn't go. So they say gathering together for church is keeping the Sabbath. Where does it ever say that? Where did it ever say keep the Sabbath by gathering together in a synagogue or by gathering together in a temple? It never said it. So they rewrite the Sabbath and then tell you that you are breaking it. I like to tell them that I'm a Sabbatarian. I like to tell them I'm more of a Sabbatarian than they are because I found my real rest in Jesus. Because Jesus is our, he became our high priest that gave the sacrifice. He became the sacrifice itself that was given and he became our rest. He fulfills all the aspects of the law. Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law, but I came to finish it. That's what that word means to fulfill. He came to finish the law and he finished it and he became a part of it. So they said, your disciples have, have broken the law by working and plucking these heads of grain, which by the way, these were strangers fields. When you traveled through an area in their day, if you were poor, you could wander in the corner of fields and you could take people's crops from the corners. That was their welfare system. It's the way they took care of the poor. Jesus and his disciples are walking through the grain fields on the days and they pluck a head of grain and suddenly out of the middle of the field pops a Pharisee. This kind of cracks me up. Where were they at? Where were they hiding? It reminds me of hee You guys remember that in the stocks of corn? People pop up and sing and say something else and somebody else pops up. He says, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But Jesus said to them, verse 25, have you not read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat. They broke the law because they were in need. It says, it was not lawful for anyone to eat except the high priest, and also gave some to those who were with him. He was saying that the need of man supersedes the law. That when there is a need, the law is superseded. He's going to give us this statement here in a moment because man wasn't made for the law, but the law was made for man. The law was meant to come alongside of you and help you. The law was meant that you might be able to live the way God wants you to live and to show you that you fail in every area and that you need the work of Jesus on the cross. The law was meant to be a signpost that leads us to Jesus. But when the law went against someone being saved, you could break the law. Even in the law, if someone's life was in jeopardy, you could break the Sabbath if their life was in jeopardy. 
And so he says, haven't you ever read that this happened? And then he says, verse, well, nope, let me get there. Okay, then he says, um, verse 27, he said to them, the Sabbath was made for a man and not man for the Sabbath. So he takes this idea that we weren't created for the Sabbath. And that's what they were thinking. They had made all their rules. There were hundreds of them that they had made on what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. If you had false teeth, which in their days were wooden, think about that, putting wood teeth in. George Washington had wooden teeth, right? Think about how we, we live in a great time where if we have false teeth, they're not wooden teeth, right? Get a splinter, ah! But they could, you couldn't wear them on the Sabbath day. They said you couldn't wear them because that was bearing a burden. Was it bearing a burden? No. These are rules they came up with because it made them feel superior to have these rules. And so he says the Sabbath was made for man to give man rest. And what matters most is people. That's what he was saying. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord over the Sabbath. Now that must have just blown their mind. Therefore, the Son of Man, that brings us back to Daniel 7, with the one coming on the clouds to the, the Ancient of Days and is given power and dominion forever and ever and ever. He is Lord over the Sabbath. So Jesus literally could break the Sabbath. Jesus was Lord over the law. A leper came to Jesus, and Jesus touched the leper. The law said, don't touch a leper. So Jesus broke the law when he touched the leper, except when he touched him, he was healed. Now he wasn't breaking the law anymore. Jesus was Lord over the Sabbath as well. Finally, we get into the last scenario. And this is in chapter 3, verse 1. And he entered the synagogue again, and there was a man there with a withered hand. And they watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. They kind of figured this Jesus, he runs around making people better. He runs around helping people. He heals people with withered hands. And we got one here in church today. Let's see if he heals him here today. In their rules, you couldn't help someone. You couldn't heal someone because that was considered to be work. And he said to the man with a withered hand, step forward. And they probably went, oh, here we go. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or evil, to save a life or to kill it? And here he makes a direct reference to if someone's life is threatened, then you could do whatever you needed to do to save them in the law, that you could suspend the idea of the Sabbath. And so he brings that up to them. And when he had looked around the room with anger, being grieved at the hardness of their heart, he was grieved and angry because their hearts had become so hard that they didn't care about people. This is what happens when we become pharisaical. We are more interested in our rules. We are more interested in legalism than we are about people. We're more interested in doing things to feel superior to people than we are about helping them. Then he said to the man, middle of verse 5, stretch out your hand. Someone said, that's a mean thing to say to a man with a withered hand. Stretch out your hand. I love the way Jesus heals. He never prayed for someone to be healed. The closest you got was with Lazarus. He, he prays to the Father and he says, I know you always hear me. And then he says, Lazarus, come out. He doesn't say, Lord, would you bring Lazarus back from the dead? Jesus had authority over death. Jesus had authority over withered hands. And he just took that authority when we're praying for, for one another, we are praying to the one that has the authority over those things. And then it says, and he stretched it out. He didn't have the ability to stretch out his hand, but he stretched it out. 
We wouldn't have faulted the man with the withered hand if when Jesus said, stretch out your hand, he said, I can't. It's withered. Every once in a while when I'll teach on something that's hard for us as Christians to do, like loving people. Someone once said, I think it was John MacArthur, ministry would be great if it wasn't for people. And when I talk about loving people, I'll get people who will come up and say, you know, these horrible things have happened to me and I have a really hard time loving people. Or forgiveness is another one. When we talk about the need to forgive, that you have to forgive, you don't necessarily need to restore, but you have to forgive. Forgiving is essential. Restoration is not, but forgiveness is. And people will come up and say, I just can't do it. I just can't do it. Well, the man with the withered hand couldn't stretch out his hand. But with the command came the power for him to stretch out his hand. And Jesus won't give you a command to do something that he doesn't give you the power to be able to do it. And so he commands you to love, and it's going to be hard, but he's going to give you the power to be able to do it. He commands you to forgive, and it's going to be hard, but as you begin to do it, you suddenly find that you have the power to be able to do the very thing that he said because he's the one behind it. Because there's power in the words that he speaks. And this man stretched out his hand. And as he stretched out his hand, it was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out immediately and plotted with the Herodians against him that they might destroy him. How dare he speak against our laws? How dare he not do things the way that we think that we should do them? Often we are like the Pharisees. We make our own rules. I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go with girls who do. I don't dance, I don't go to movies, I don't listen to secular music. Has all been things that I've seen people do in the past. And if you don't listen to secular music because it doesn't edify you and you find that you are drawn away from being closer to Christ, then more power to you. Then don't listen to it. Paul said, I'm free and I have all liberty but I don't want to do something that's going to cause me to not be as close to Christ as I can be, to things that don't edify me, he says. That's great. But because we are who we are, as soon as we start not doing something, we immediately think other people should not, should, shouldn't do the same thing we shouldn't do. We immediately take what we feel we ought to use our liberty for, and we begin to put it on other people. They, the, the Pharisees' problem wasn't that they kept the law. The Pharisees' problem is that they added more laws to it. And I'm afraid the church is heading down that road, if not already well down that. Our problem isn't that we don't keep the scriptures or don't see the power in the scriptures or want to keep them. We see the authority and power that's in them. Our problem is, is that we add to it. We make our little rules. We make our, and, and we, if people don't keep our rules, then we look down our nose at them. And we become pharisaical. We should practice our religion in such a way that when men see it, they give glory to God. And we should not do our good works in front of men to be seen by men. This is just a couple suggestions, all right? The Bible says that pastors aren't to lord over the flock. I'm not telling you guys what to do and what not to do. But I want to give you some, a couple of things that maybe fall into the category of things I thought I would never hear my pastor say. One of them, you guys are like, oh, now I got some of your attention. You're like, well, what, what is he going to say? Number one, when you go to a restaurant and you're going to pray for your food, the Bible says that food is sanctified by the blessing, so it's good to pray for your food. But when you do it, sometimes you make a show of it. Sometimes there's holding hands, no problem, okay? Your hand holder, prayer circles out there. You, you hold hands and then you pray and you pray for a long time. And you might say something like, 
you know what, I'm serving Christ and I'm praying for my food and I don't care who's here to see it, I'm going to do it. But I'm just wondering, in doing that, you know, the waiter starts to come up and can't because you're praying, so he's got to kind of stop and wait. People around you begin to look as you pray for a long time, maybe pray loudly. I wonder if it might not be. I'm just, I'm just asking the question. You can decide, okay? Don't, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just asking, is it possible that you are doing your works in front of men to be seen by men? And Jesus said, don't do your works in front. He said, literally, don't do them. Don't do your works in front of men to be seen by men, but do it in the in secret place. And your God who sees in secret will reward you openly. I'm not saying you don't pray in a restaurant over your food. I think you should. I, I'm just saying make it quick. And, and while we're on the subject, I mean, again, you do, you do what you want to do. But when you are invited over to someone's house for dinner and they, they know you're a Christian and they say, will you pray for our meal? Then make it short. You got a chance to, to, to shine for Christ right then and there. And if you pray for a really long time, by the time you're, you're done, people in your family are going, shut up inside their mind. Shut up. Stop talking. I want to eat. You bow your head in front of the food that smells so good and you go on and on and on. I, um, years ago, I said, uh, we were having a conversation and, and I like Tim Tebow, okay? Love him, Christian, stand, stands for God and he stands boldly for God and that's all good. But we were having a conversation about him. They were talking about how someone was really upset that he would go make a touchdown, go into the end zone, kneel down and pray. And then I said, personally, I don't think he should be doing that. Should it, somebody here from the church, you should have seen the look on their face. They're, what? You don't think Tim Tebow should be going into the end zone and praying? Now, again, he, he can do what he wants to do. He didn't care what I think anyway, I guarantee you. He's going to know, he'll never know, all right? So don't get offended for him, all right? He can do what he wants to do. I'm not telling him he can't do it. I'm just saying, is he doing that to be seen by men? And if he's doing it, if he's praying to be seen by men, then Jesus says, don't pray to be seen by men, but go in your room where God sees you in secret and rewards you openly. So all I'm asking, now that I got everybody in here offended at me, all right, all, all I'm asking is that we reevaluate what we do and how we do it and ask the question, am I being pharisaical? Am I doing something to be seen by people? Am I doing something because I believe it gives me an extra edge with God, that I'm keeping this rule, I'm keeping this law, and so God likes me more than he likes other people? The number one thing that Christians, that modern Christians should stop doing is being Pharisees. Jesus kept his harshest words against the Pharisees. We should find ourselves instead caring about those that are, are bound by sin, that are oppressed by sin. Maybe not looking down at our nose at sinners that have had their lives destroyed by sin, but instead learning how to be compassionate towards them and be more like our Savior then we are like Pharisees. Everything okay with us? You guys still happy with me? All right, good. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you as we take a look at this contrast between Jesus and the Pharisees, between the tax collectors and the Pharisees. And we do pray that we would put Phariseeism aside, that we wouldn't come up with our own little rules that we keep and feel superior because we keep them. We want to put legalism away. We have been set free from the law and we want to be in a relationship with you. We want to love you and we want to do what you want us to do. Lord, show us what you want from us and we will do the very things that you have called us to do. 
We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on Kagan 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.